0: There's a, my dad recently came back from a Harvard business seminar. Name drop. <laughs> yeah. The f- Can you hand that to me? I'm going to turn that off. I don't even know why it's on.
1: Also, you have a Samsung product in your house. Is that bad? No, you're just Mr. Apple.
0: I, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. I don't like Apple.
1: You have an iPad and an iPhone. I don't like Apple.
0: I have an iPad because it's very nice to write on. Android tablets, the CPUs are a little janky. Okay.
1: So I wanted to talk to you about this new term that's been going around over the last couple of months, but especially in the last week, uh, called the intellectual dark web. Have you encountered this term? Yes. All right. We need to get into that just a little bit because I have seen a disproportionate degree of engagement with this term. I've had the term in my brain for the last couple of months, but uh, until the New York Times put out a, a op-ed on that, uh, Barry Weiss, I think, is the one who wrote it. Uh, it wasn't really mainstream in my feed, but this week in particular, I saw people on the left and the right, and everywhere in between, freaking out over what that term refers to.
0: This intellectual dark web thing is—it's—it's f- it's similar to the internet dark web, or internet—you know, the the hidden wiki and all that fun stuff. Well, like the black market too. The black market. It, it, those words, for me, those words are pretty much scare words. They're to get; they're just to incite conversation and debate and get. Pe- it's marketing. I mean, really, when I hear that stuff, it's it's mostly marketing. So, instead, instead, what I would reterm those words as, and not a marketing, a very boring way, is like, "Oh, you you are you are you're counter to the intellectual intellectualism that's coming out of academia. So, you're, you're counter." To the hyper feminist, hyper, hyper, um, not anti sexual, but hyper, not not viewing an- anti gender, hyper anti gender, all that stuff. You're you're not really a part of that type of that type of intellectual. That's so. I, I for me, it's really important to strip away all that marketing stuff because yeah, it is it is counter. It's counter to the intellectual academic stuff that comes out of most college campuses where you know Jordan Peterson and Myonopoulos. oh Milo Yiannopoulos. he
1: you,
0: those guys are chased off from yeah. and so I just I just want to strip the marketing away from it and rather and and in my mind talk about it for what it really is which is just a, a counterintellectual movement
1: yeah, I think the term can be off-putting. It does sound a little bit like a pejorative as though you're trying to condemn these people saying dark web.
0: Well, it also makes them hyper special.
1: How do you mean? And the way that like so, the designation of intellectual makes you seem yeah. hyper special.
0: So, okay, when we were dealing with the internet, when the dark web came out, that was like a, it made the internet it made that part of the internet, which is actually a really boring area super interesting and people would talk about what it could mean and why it was important and what it really was and it's it's not it's not any more fascinating than the internet already is it's just it's just older versions it's older web page older versions of the internet hmm. so sixties, seventies stuff it's mm-hmm. anything that's behind a um a a login and a password it's older web pages it's documents and images and things you can't just like you don't just type in a url to get to Mm -hmm. but calling something a dark web like what we did with the internet made it special it made it seem like there was something there there was there was things to find out there was there was there was uh the onion layers to peel back and find out what was between and really there's not and for me when we, when we talk about the, the intellectual dark web, it does the exact same thing. It's like, there's something really cool and hidden in here. And then no, it's just more intellectualism. It's, it's just, it's just maybe a counter to the intellectual. It's just a response to all of the hyper feminist stuff and the hyper egalitarian stuff and the hyper democratic stuff. I'm not sure. Certainly just
1: progressive ideology and identity, identity politics in general. Um, you know, what's what's interesting about the term intellectual dark web, the first time it came to my attention was from Sam Harris's podcast with Ben Shapiro and Eric Weinstein. And Ben Shapiro is obviously a very conservative pundit. Sam Harris has always been kind of a liberal atheist thinker uh, towards the progressive side. And Eric Weinstein is kind of... It's hard to classify where he falls on the spectrum, but certainly um, one of the more brilliant people that I've encountered over the last year or two. And when he coins this term, the intellectual dark web... I guess what he's really saying is kind of like a reiteration of Jonathan Haidt's heterodoxy sort of thing where it's like, it's not as though this, it's not as though the non-dark web is not intellectual. Um, it's it's that this kind of intellectualism is treated with contempt and silence and dismissal uh, in the way that certain things in the dark web um, can be as well, whether the dark web takes the form of conspiracy theories or, um, you know, drug trading or anything between the two um and so it's funny that the the term that sounds pejorative came from within the movement and um i i thought it was kind of cheesy and pretentious when i first heard it it took a while to grow on me but now that it's a term of referral um and i don't mean to make this an analogy at all but everyone is now not everyone many people on the left are now making this this analogy between the what the intellectual dark web is and the alt-right in the ways that like people are being lumped together if you're outside of the overton window then you are all of a sudden this alien subhuman creature and so the intellectual dark web is all of these people that shouldn't belong together in theory like i just said we have conservatives liberals non-classifiable people in between i mean there's brett weinstein who got shouted down from evergreen college for that day of um uh, racial uh like like where the college wanted white people not to show up on campus uh, i
0: that i didn't hear about that oh it was that a sounds... day, it's called
1: a day of absence, and evergreen College is in Washington, I believe it 's a very, very liberal college, and Brett Weinstein was a evolutionary biologist who was tenured there. He protested this, not protest really, but um he got into this huge shouting match with students where he was so quiet and reasonable and humble but there's a hallway full of student activists on the progressive left who are saying uh you're racist if you if you don't acknowledge our our demands for you to stay home you know so he he got chased out of his job with his wife who was also tenured at that university and he's now a part of the intellectual dark web someone who was a Bernie Sanders supporting evolutionary biologist like he is now in this crowd as well and i could keep going and keep going it's just
0: a head holding that's a head holding statement okay it's crazy there was a so With Krista Tippett and her On Being podcast, there was a lady, I forget her name, there was a lady who came on and she, Krista Tippett said, what does it feel like to be, what does it feel like to be a post-activist? I don't even know what that means. Somebody who doesn't, who's not an activist anymore but
1: post implies some kind of implicit activism like you're you're taking from the the history of activism. Well, she's
0: taking, yeah, she is she's still pulling from the history of activism, but she's not she's not an active activist. She's more of talking about how to be a better activist, not the violent.
1: Is it like the whole loud. those who can't do teach sort of thing? Like those who can't be activists teach others to be activists?
0: Um so this lady used to be very loud. She used to... She... If you were to take me and ask me what I thought of what this lady did, I would say violent. Hmm. Because screaming at people, holding signs, making demands, telling people off, using pejoratives... um, all of those things to me, that's just violent. Like Mm. it's just, it's, and it doesn't have to be violent. doesn't have to be, of course, physical. It can also be oral violence. And that's what, that's what a lot for me, what a lot of activism tends to be is oral violence. Mm. And so she was commenting on, I used to be a very angry activist Mm. and now I'm not that anymore. I realize that that just doesn't work. Mm. That all of the anger that I'm spewing out is, it's my anger. It's not, anger at what they're doing it's anger at me you know me holding all this stuff inside and seeing my people downtrodden all that stuff mm-hmm. but it, but that's a that's still a personal anger hmm. it's not it's not a it's not an anger that's spread throughout an, an entire community it's her anger now that anger that there are a lot of people angry mm-hmm. but each person has their own individual angers about what's going on mm-hmm. And so she was. She was commenting on that. She's not. She doesn't do that anymore. She's interested in. She's interested in understanding, hmm. and that's how she's changed her. And she's. She's taught, She doesn't want to deal with somebody who doesn't want to understand, and that means alt right. That means alt left, if that's a thing. Hmm. That means all those. That means all all of those people who don't wanna who don't wanna handle themselves in in a nonviolent and as you as you said about why who was his name Weiss? Weinstein Weinstein um, that's a dangerous word name to say um, <laughs> well because of Harvey Weinstein yeah 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 okay so there's a difference. well so they differently pronounced I've
1: heard them a couple times actually make that distinction and be like mm-hmm. hey let's not actually confuse the last
0: names right. here no relation okay
1: although maybe some kind of genealogical history but no cultural or social relation
0: right um Anyways, so yeah, she's not. She's she's more interested in understanding people. Hmm.
1: Yeah, well, that reminds me of a lot of things. Um, One recent example would be um, going again. Sam Harris. um, He had a podcast with this guy. I think his name was Christian Picciolini. He was a former neo-Nazi when he was growing up, like Mm -hmm. for about most of his childhood up till mid twenties or so. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would he was in basically a skinhead gang where he would go and violently beat people up and yeah. all kinds of hateful horrible things and at some point he had his awakening and it now has spent longer than the amount of time he was doing the neo-nazi thing working with people to de-escalate their radicalism towards those certain ideologies and mm-hmm. like trying to turn people who are white supremacists away from that and it, and the idea it, it's it's a pretty common idea in policing as well as you like draw from the c- people from the community who actually know the the ideology and the motivations and the culture and the families and the geography and all these right. sort of things to help diffuse the situation. And it sounds like with a lesser extreme, that, that example from the uh, Krista Tippett podcast is kind of like you have to start from a place of being able to see the humanity if you want to actually solve the thing. Right you know with the intellectual dark web i'm really frustrated because a lot of people who i really respect keep dismissing these people as amongst other things like racist or misogynist or the usual epithets and i just fundamentally don't understand how and why there there there's such a disconnect between these two groups of people so like yeah let's take the example of jordan peterson being the easy one a lot of philosophers who like I've been a fan of over the last five to ten years or so. Pretty much unanimously hate Jordan Peterson, write him off as a quack. And one of my good friends, whose intellect I otherwise respect, tweeted the other day, Ayn Rand plus Deepak Chopra equals Jordan I, you, Peterson. Yeah, I
0: remember you telling me this. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that just that got under my skin. Mm-hmm. And um, it doesn't matter how that, that little interaction resolved. The idea was that someone who presumably in good faith could see such a totally different thing mm-hmm. from the seemingly same set of information that I'm seeing and and like come to a wildly different conclusion I just don't get it I read all these attack pieces all these op-eds all these oppositional pieces and I still am just baffled there's all these motifs throughout these critiques and it makes me think that it's like motivated um misrepresentation
0: there's a New York Times, um, did a little, they had a little question and answer between two people about Jordan Peterson after reading his 12 Rules for Life book. Okay. And they, they just, they went through, they went through not every chapter, but most of the themes in the chapters. Mm -hmm. And they're, they went through, is he, you know, is he anti feminist? Is he racist? Is he part of the alt right? Is he, um, is he? You know, who who is he trying to? T- what's his audience really? What who's who is he able to speak to, and who's able to understand what he's talking about? And all all of the first part is he racist? Is he alt right? Is he anti feminist? They they said no. Like I can't. I, I'm not finding that there. He says things that can you know seem to be a kind of iffy about women. And how he splits men and women, like saying that there are definite differences. Let's not confuse those. Um, But other than that, they they didn't they didn't they didn't concur. The two people in this little question and answer, they didn't concur that uh, he was he was anyway like any anyway like those the the alt right or neo He's not he's nothing like that. Um, What they did mention, I thought was really interesting. Which I tried following up a little bit, but I didn't find a whole bunch on, was most of the people, and this was based off of uh both what Jordan Peterson was talking about. No, sorry, what Jordan Peterson's how Jordan Peterson's book sold to people on Amazon who who bought it. And then also um people on forums who were commenting, and then I forget the other one. I wish I shouted the article. Anyways, they explained that most of the people who were reading these books or listening to Joseph Peterson's um, videos and lectures were young white men, and that that's the that's the mainstay for who listens to them. And it's part of the issue they had with Twelve Rules of Life was that was that was the main pl- issue they had with it is that th- these books are written for people who. Are who seem to again. This is not my opinion. Um, these books are written for people who can take the blame because they don't. They're they're working under individual blame, and I'll describe what that is because um, that just sounds vague as hell. I think individual blame being you are not you are not operating underneath an oppressive system as a black man or a black woman or a minority you are you are an individual who's a white man who doesn't have to worry about not getting alone or things that we've heard from you know how racism how institutional racism functions you don't need to worry about those things those things are not your ever everyday present life they're things that you read about but you're not going to live through So you can have theories on, but you can't have experience on. And so a lot of these books are talking about individual responsibility. And so the individual, it's really easy for an individual, it's easy for them, but actually acting on it is an entirely different thing. Anyways, it's really easy for an individual to look at themselves in the mirror and say, he's right, these are the ways I need to improve, I need to be better and not lie, I need to treat my kids well, I need to go through the list of rules. Because each rule relates to an individual, at least that's what these people were speaking about, and I've read the book, and yeah, he's talking about individuals. Um, he seems to be talking directly to you. It, it almost feels like he's reading these rules to you. You're listening to a dad give a lecture for how to grow up. Um, however, again, going back to this systemic thing, if you're if you're a minority, you don't want to have individual blame. Because you have a system that's not working for you. you have a system that's geared against you. And so is it easier is it easier to say I'm to blame or is it is, is it more truthful to say the system is to blame and maybe me? But if the if Jordan Peterson's book doesn't also say the system is faulty, it's not you, how do you how, how can how can a black man reading that? How can a, a minority reading that? how can how can they understand that they also have a system that's oppressing them and it doesn't that, that Jordan Peterson's book doesn't account for that and that that was one of the critiques that was the main critique they didn't have really any other critiques that was the main critique in the New York Times essay casey didn't agree with me he thought jordan peterson dealt with systems but i think jordan peterson speaks about systems that are working in nature like the lobsters like um there's some other animal that he quotes, chimpanzees, um, and then also just how human beings function, and those are systems, hmm. but those are not the oppressive systems that racism is talking about. Yeah. Those are systems that are, those are systems that are that are natural. Those are natural systems that we don't have any control over that occur because of biology.
1: Yeah, I think that critique uh, is a fair one if you assume that systems are something. Or are a way to analyze society or right. groups of people, and I'm skeptical of systemic thinking, mm-hmm. um, mostly because of how it's been used in my educational history. I mm. haven't really developed a sophisticated understanding of that, but it just makes me think of Foucault. And
0: oh, I mean, read yeah, anybody who reads Foucault is just going to know that there's
1: power structures
0: there's power structures that's where you're going to get out of it but like power structures are vague and sure he defines them but at the same time you can find freaking power structures anywhere there's a guy right now i just walked who walked past my window on the other, other side of the fence there's a power structure dynamic going on right there because he's on the other side of the fence and so the fences functions as a power structure because it keeps him out of my property i mean you can you can apply power structures anywhere
1: sure you can but that doesn't mean that it's a useful thing to no, apply it not doesn't at all. it doesn't translate necessarily into action potential for you as a person and so the whole collective versus individual thing critiquing jordan peterson's book is that's fair if you assume that systems and structures are and like relationships are the way to look at the world as opposed to you in proximity phenomenologically to the world And I think that's one of the subtle things that gets missed by a lot of critics of Peterson is his relationship to phenomenology. So um, there's kind of metaphysics, ontology, and then this in-between thing.
0: We should probably define phenomenology.
1: That's what I'm going to do. Okay. Okay. So, So we have metaphysics, which is kind of like the imagined structures, the epiphenomenal, like abstractions of the way the world works physically like the actual tangibility of objects and like if i knock on a chair i might know in theory that it's empty space but it's still going to appear to me as a chair so my metaphysics is born out of the way it presents itself to me and then there's ontology which is the thing that is so like the chair is in some ways wood it's its essence is more wood but its meaning to me as chair is is actually what presents itself so like that negotiated relationship is phenomenology which is the the way that my perception interacts with what is quote-unquote real in the external world, and there's something kind of fishy about that relationship. And Peterson wants to say over and over, and he says this through Jung mostly, but he also borrows from Nietzsche and from other people like, you know, Maslow and the rest, that the phenomenological might be actually underneath the metaphysical and the ontological. And so... All of that is deadly abstract, I understand, but if I could say it to someone who wasn't familiar with philosophy, I would just say, like, how much does your perception define your experience of reality? And I think a lot of the collectivist thinkers, the people who want to appeal to structural things, to systemic things like racism or misogyny or whatever, they're a lot closer towards the reality is defining my perception of it. Um, You know, the externals are what is presenting my, you know, like, that's why the individual identity I identify with being a black man or being a woman or whatever, why that takes such prominence in our rhetoric. And on the other hand, there's kind of like, no, it's more of like an empirical hardline dogmatism of like, this chair is just wood and chair, like, there's nothing that your identity has to do with that. And I think Peterson is actually a lot more complicated than those two extremes. And um people want to lump him in with the hardline empiricists, and I think they missed the point
0: yeah that, that that was one of the things in new york he they talked they spoke about him as like the the new- it, he described- they described him as the new conservative or the new hard conservative uh, whatever that means
1: i yeah i guess hard is just a way of softening well a way of saying far right or you know extreme but The conservative charge against Peterson strikes me as very peculiar because he's paid lip service to liberal values here, there, and everywhere in various interviews. Maybe that's just me assuming that, and this is another critique that I see over and over, especially on Twitter, is that Jordan Peterson fans are like the most obnoxious people in the world because when someone critiques him, all of his fans come at that person critiquing them and saying, oh, you just must have missed this one video where he explains it. And it's like you're expecting someone who has this assumption about this guy to watch another three hours of him to get the point, the little subtle point. And right. maybe that's not fair on our part or my part.
0: Well, I mean, you, at that, yeah,
1: that's the problem with a lot of things where you, there's just such an abundance of material is that the more time you spend with it, the more familiar you get with it. And the more you appreciate it in some sense, not always, but at least when you are interested in something. Um, but that, that all frustrates me. Because I think that when I read 12 Rules for Life, there was a lot in that book that I needed to, to be reminded of in a clear way.
0: Yeah, that was the other thing they spoke about. I forgot. Thank you for reminding me. Is they, they spoke about how that book is it's talking about very simple things. Yeah, It's very simple things that everybody knows already.
1: Well, that's one of the main critiques that he gets for that book is that 12 Rules for Life is nothing special. It's just repackaging cultural wisdom and what's wrong with that as far as i can tell like what would you say like why is that a critique i have my reasons but what would you imagine if someone's like lambasting you for not saying anything new you
0: know well we i mean blake we live in we live in a culture that everything has to be new i mean look okay so mass effect is a great example the video game mass The effect. video game mass effect sorry because i think in video games um <laughs> So with Mass Effect the very first one came out everybody thought it was amazing because it was doing a lot of new things but using a lot of old stuff. The second one came out and they loved the mechanics um and they liked how they liked how they changed the game. They they liked how they changed the mechanics for how the story unraveled, but there were some there were some issues dealing with character development that people didn't like, but they they loved that everything in 2 was new. 3 they really liked how they streamlined whatever happened in 2. Um they took away the really long loading screens. And then they they flubbed supposedly the ending. But there wasn't a lot new. They they recycled a lot of stuff from 2. They just made it cleaner. And so 3 got like less warm reception yeah. than 2. And so f- when I when I was when I was reading and also just thinking about that 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 little that tiny micro microcosm around Mass Effect, the, I think that microcosm can be pulled out from that from those events and applied to. We seek things that are new. We don't want to play the we don't want to play the same thing. We don't want to. We don't want to revisit books we've already read. We don't want to see the same tropes used again and again and again in a TV show, yeah. 90210, for example, or some of the shows, some of the movies and TV shows that happen on Netflix, they use similar tropes. Um, we don't want to... Like, when you watch anime, you're expecting... I mean... You're you're expecting completely new plot developments each time you watch it, but at, like the world can only offer you so much. Yeah. People get bored in sex. Why do they get bored in sex? Because it's it's repeat repeat run repeat run but that's a mindset and so when you're when when you're talking about the 12 rules of life yeah it's repackaged colloquial wisdom but dear god we need that shit like you we need that shit because we need rules i i agree with jordan peterson a lot, of, a lot of hyper-liberal stuff has stripped the rules away. Foucault fucked us. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, sorry. It's nuanced. You can right. confess all you want, Foucault, Foucault fucked us when he talked about power structures because he not only showed us stuff, but he also stripped them away at the same time. Hmm. He, he just made them completely bare and said, you know, this is all trivial. That I don't agree that that stuff is trivial. I think that stuff is really important because it's doing something in society. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's making it so when I get up in the morning, I have a lot of meaning Mm -hmm. to continue to get out of bed. I mean, these might be, I, on my, on my wall, I have these rules that hang or these guidelines that hang above, above my bed that say, you know, the different, the different tasks that I'm going to complete in the morning and at night, those are really important for me. Mm -hmm. They help start and end my day. I know when my day is finishing. I know it's like, it's like it's like having bookends. The books don't fall apart at the end. You can you you have something to hold them up. You understand how your day, how your life, how your choices are going to matter or not matter.
1: Yeah, and I think one of the reasons I think Jordan Peterson's book became successful and him as a cultural figure has risen into prominence is that religion has dissipated as an organizing structure and so a lot of those those rules that were inculcated into social life cultural life neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff have been lost and we've had to individually assemble meaning so to i think what jordan peterson's 12 rules for life book does really well is it it functions like a curation of things and curation is one of my favorite ways to talk about art forms and ideas and whatnot because it it presumes that someone can take their own perspective and put on hold other things that might also be true, but let's distill down to the essentials, like what needs to be understood. And this is true in like the literary canon of, you know, if you're going to be a citizen of the West, you should have some general sense of your history from, you know, at least the Greeks onward. Um, Are you a fully integrated Western citizen if you do not have that sense of history? Perhaps but you're going to be a deeper integrated citizen if you do have some sense. And you don't need to read everything. You just need to know, let's say, 12 rules or 12 books throughout the, the history. And in this way, I think Peterson's book just functions like that. It's like a museum of ideas because each chapter is not predictable. The rules themselves might be predictable and in something we've all heard in some fashion before. But that to, to dismiss the book on the merit of it being repackaged wisdom, assumes that everyone had a stable upbringing where they did hear these rules positively put to them, right. where they didn't have people inside their houses trying to corrupt them and bring them down and beat them up at every opportunity. I, I've known many people who have had abusive situations growing up, and I guarantee you they did not hear the rule, um, you know, treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping, mm-hmm. for example that would have been beaten out of them because you know you're you're in that situation worthless or even less than you're an object of contempt and there's there's other things like some of the rules are tongue-in-cheek in in peterson's book like don't bother children when they're skateboarding but the chapter is not tongue-in-cheek it's just it's a provocative way to enter into the conversation um I don't know. Like when you read that book, w- did any rules in particular stick out to you as something new or like a clearer way of understanding something you kind of already I mean, thought?
0: Each, I think each chapter did that. There was there was a really interesting the one cha- was it five? I think I don't it's have them memorized
1: in order, but five, I can pull it up real quick. It
0: was I think it was five where he was talking about treat your children well or something along those oh, lines.
1: Um don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Yeah, that I think Believe. it's
0: I think it was five. Anyways, that I was I'm reading. I'm reading his book and then also another book and both of them intersected in that chapter. The one book that I'm reading is the um, Self-Guided, Self-Taught Child, something like that, um, by William S-Stixrid. Um Those two intercept, in, intersected at chapter five where... Jordan Peterson and Stixred. Stixred is, he's, he's a, I don't know, sociologist, neuroscientist, I'm not sure. Anyways, he's studying child child behavior, and he's been doing it for a very long time. And he decided to write a book about it. Anyways, uh, and he talks about how the a, a child needs to learn through failing. Hmm. And you let the child, you, you know. So there's one example where, um, Ted. I'm just going to name that the child that Ted, <laughs> Ted goes to high school. Well, the mom, the mom, told the school that it's that Ted gets to s- decide if Ted wants to stay at school, and, um, Ted is responsible for his own things. Now, mom still remains responsible for Ted. This is not mom giving up all rights to Ted, but this is mom teaching Ted responsibility, and it's the hard way, honestly. And so Ted makes. Ted, you know, walks up to the office, and every day they have a they have a pass ready for Ted to sign to leave the school. The first year that happens, almost every day, Ted fails that year, and he has to repeat it. And he never does that again. And he learned, and he's now graduated and working somewhere in New York. Blah blah blah, successful. Let's just call it that. And so that was a very hard way for Ted to learn about that. And that's what that's what William is talking about a whole bunch is the difficulty for letting your child. Do the things that are going to teach them in a very hard way that you don't agree with. You don't want to let your child do that. And and that's what Jordan Peterson was talking about to me. At least that's what I understood as well. He's saying don't do things that are going to stop your child from learning these hard lessons because there's going to become a point that, you know, 25 years down the road, your kid might look up and say, oh, my mom and dad never taught me this. And there's that, there's that don't do what you're... Don't do something that will make your kid hate you. At that moment, they will dislike you because they never learned that rule. They never learned, they never learned to deal with that, insert difficult life situation.
1: Well, we have to be careful in the precision of the rule there too. I think the inverse is actually mm-hmm. correct what you just said as well. But it's don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Oh, um, you oh, just okay. said don't let your children dislike you, which is oh, okay. I think that's part of the rule. Yeah. But yeah. The way that it's phrased is a little more barbed than that. Okay. You know, because it, it's a little bit controversial to, to say that, you know, like, you shouldn't allow them to throw a temper tantrum. Like, you should just, like, take them out of the movie theater sort of thing and punish them and whatnot. Um, because it's, it's going to make you resentful later. And I think one of the things that scared me about that chapter, not that it scared me, but it made me wary about if I ever become a parent was you have a lot of power that you wield over that child in the same way that you have a lot of power that you wield over your partner in a relationship. Like, you know, Elaine Bouton of the school of life, he has the book, uh, in the course of love. And there's all these short films on the channel as well, where you should treat your child like, or sorry, you should treat your romantic partner like a child in the same way that it's kind of unconditional. Like if they're having a bad day and throwing a fit and being in a bad mood, um, you should just assume that they're valid in that in some way and, and kind of help them through it in the way that you would a child. You wouldn't just, you know, start like reacting negatively and, and kind of, I don't know, vindictively towards your child. If they started doing that, you, you would want to figure out what's wrong. Like, why are you crying today? Or why are you misbehaving in this way? Um, Not every parent's going to be like that, but I think that those ideas intersected for me as well, where it's like, Because you have so much power over this person, um, you should be really scared because you think, like, I would never do anything to hurt my child. I love my child. But, like, at the end of the 60-hour work week when you're on your last little fuse of patience and then the kid, you know, draws with crayons on the walls, you just want to explode and let them have
0: it. Well. With a kid. Wow. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> that can go a nuance, right? Yeah, it can, okay. but
1: Jesus, <laughs> I wasn't going to go that far. Um, it was interesting that I found that chapter to be valuable because I'm not the kind of person, as we've discussed before on this podcast, who is interested in having children. Um, I mean, maybe one day, but mostly my reasons have not changed since we did that podcast. Um, but. I still think that that's a really valuable rule to have on the desk. And it actually became useful with my tutoring students um, at the writing center over the last semester, because I had the 12 rules printed out and on my bad days, I would read through them just kind of as like a kind of like an affirmation. I hate to sound cheesy about it, but that was kind of just like, all right, if I can implement even one of these rules over the course of this next four hour stretch of stressfulness, my life will be a little bit more on track. And it's like, I translated it in my head from don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them to don't let your students do anything that makes you dislike them. And um, that was a fun little thing to play with.
0: Do you think that that chapter has anything to do with the concept of radical honesty?
1: You're going to have to do more and tell me what you mean there. Uh,
0: So there's this one book called Radical Honesty. Don't know who it's written by. Uh, Where they speak about you are honest... I guess to a fault with your partner or friends or whoever you, there's no there's no holding back hmm. uh, brutal so, honesty perhaps yeah okay brutal honesty um, that's I, I was wondering if that if those two no, I don't think what so. Jordan Peterson's saying in ra- brutal honesty or radical
1: It depends. Like, I think in some cases, yes. Like, there's this idea with youth sports that everyone gets to participate, everyone gets to turn off the bench where you get on the field and play, and then everyone gets a trophy sort of thing. And that's kind of dangerous because eventually those sports will become merit-based. Eventually, like in high school or middle school where you have to try out, you're going to fail at some point, like, unless you're just a super athlete who works really hard. That participation, the expectation of success without encountering failure in any regard can be worse than if you encounter that failure in the form of radical honesty or brutal honesty like um, I heard an anecdote of this uh, parent the other day and he was talking about how he told his his son um, basically do you want me to blow smoke up your ass or do you want to know the truth like you could have played better you could have done a better job in this game and that's really harsh to say to your kid uh, I don't know that that's quite what Peterson's saying, but I do think you're you're setting them up for failure or at least self-doubt, guilt, and shame later in their lives if they don't get those little s- tiny slaps towards the right direction early on. Um, slap is kind of an abusive word. <laughs> right.
0: So if, if we're supposed to treat our lovers as if they're children, mm-hmm. then should we combine Jordan Peterson's don't let your child do anything that would make you hate them? Don't do let that your partner well? do
1: anything that makes you just like them. Yeah. In some ways, yes. But that that is too particular for me to weigh in on as someone who's not had consistent like romantic success. Like you mentioned the radical honesty. and And one of the things I've been thinking about recently is I am the kind of person who is too honest sometimes. I'm not saying that I'm like morally righteous because I tell the truth. I'm saying... I have slapped people in the face by saying what I'm actually thinking and when, what I'm feeling before when the kinder thing to do would have been to white lie or finagle some way into a kinder response. And I, I thought about it the other day, like, what's my hierarchy of values? And it's, it feels like my default that I've had for a long time has been truth and reason and logic and, you know, understanding and all of those kinds of philosophical kind of ideals. And I realized, like, it would probably be better to live my life if kindness were at the top of that, rather than, and then truth would be subordinate to kindness. I don't know if that means lying to people, but in terms of what I should care about more, like, would it be better to let someone kind of, from my perspective, be wrong about something, but but them feel better about themselves and us have a better quality interaction, perhaps? Um, I guess it depends on the friend, but I thought about, like, what if I flipped that hierarchy around? What would that mean for my personality, for my relationships, for my life?
0: My dad came back from a Harvard business seminar, and he emailed me a PDF of a personality, a negotiation personality test, Uh, a, a test that helps you find out your personality in negotiations. Is this like assertiveness? Kind of yeah, assertiveness and accommodation or okay. compromisation or yeah, agreeableness and yeah. such. And most of most of I, I took it. So did so did Ari. That's unimportant. important. I took it, and uh, most of mine is accommodating. I'm like a hundred percent accommodating, and then sixty percent collaborating, and then fifty percent avoidance, and ten percent competing and these might not mean anything to you. That right actually
1: does. That seems to describe you pretty much how I would imagine.
0: So um that was w- w- when we're talking about these, you know, living your life. Casey and I don't get along because he's high competent. He, he's high com- he's highly competitive. He's high he's high com- competing.
1: He's he's very competitive in Thank the sense you. that he is well I'm not going to describe how. And
0: so he's just going to state the truth. His entire focus is geared towards truth, and my focus is more geared, toward, geared towards relationships. Yeah. And what this what this Harvard Business Seminar talked talked about is not staying not staying on this, not making a dot, but making a rail that you can move on. You don't want to make you don't want to make a spot that you can stand on. You want to make a rail that you you can fluctuate and move to where you feel comfortable, because if I'm if I'm Casey's gonna walk all over me all the time because I'm accommodating. Because hmm. um, I don't want to. I don't want I don't want to talk to somebody who is going to. Con- oh, that's well. Here's my point, and then like come back at me and like I. But I don't want to. I'm not interested in hearing your point. I'm interested in finding a solution for all of this. I don't care about points. Mm-hmm. Um, and not points as like sport game points, but like his his perspective. I, like yes, I get your perspective, but that's just a perspective. I want to find a solution for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't, I, I wouldn't say living life in, a, with kindness as, as on the top of the hierarchy with truth right below it is a good way. I think that, I think that moving, I think that if you're on one side or the other, that's probably bad. If you're, if you're standing on one, if you're standing on the spectrum in a spot, that's not a good idea. You want to be more maybe collaborative. So each person gets a win-win from the situation each person gets to walk away from an event where i got everything i wanted they got everything i wanted or there's some type of compromise going on mm-hmm. based on you know whether or not that event can hold it it allows for it allows for everybody to achieve their goals or if it's or if the event is fairly restricting mm-hmm. that, and, and it doesn't everybody has to compromise to get what they want and that sometimes you're going to lose lose or whatever yeah well uh, the
1: best possible world is where everyone gets the most like of what they want if ever like everyone wins to some degree that seems better than one person winning a lot like if especially if that one person is myself and it's really easy if truth is at the top rather than kindness not that kindness fixes the problem but it i've seen enough problems with truth to kind of poke holes and want to move it off the top um you still have to aim for something but at at some point collaboration is in some ways like I've been thinking recently um th- this idea came from a number of places but kind of like the the way you treat other people is you like not not in terms of like your actions define you rather than your intentions so much as if you're living with someone if you try to win the battle with them like this is true of marriage then you're just going to like Peterson mentions this about marriage. He says, like, do you want to live with a weak partner who just cows over every time you get in an argument? No, you want someone you can contend with who's going to help get you back on the right track as well if you can both kind of find a middle path. That seems like a better thing for everybody. If, like, I get a little bit of what I want and you get a little bit of what you want rather than I get most of what I want, which leaves you miserable, which then comes back to me, it's not necessarily selfish. But, like, if you treat the... Starting with, like, treating the person you're living with as though that person were you. So like buy them dinner, pick up something they like on the way home, like write them a little note about how much they mean to you, like clean up their dishes, like little things. It's not necessarily being a servant, but you know, being going out of your way to think from their perspective, what would make their lives easier and better. That feels like a really helpful thing to put towards the top. And I'm not saying I'm good at that. And that's not a sanctimonious realization. It's something to like try and become better at
0: yeah i mean if 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 you're saying that, one of the things I need to become better at is is stating my perspective, stating my point, and stating my point even though because most of the time I'm fearful that I'm going to hurt someone's feelings, and so I just stay quiet. Um, but I need to I need to know that relationships aren't everything. And I don't mean like girlfriend-boyfriend relationships. I mean even friendships, business relationships. You sometimes you you don't want to prioritize the relationship over. That sounds really economic, but you don't want to pri- prioritize the relationship over the you know, the goods that you have and the goods that they have, hmm. because those those goods are the things that the thing that is going to last longer. Whereas the relationship that's going to constantly change, that's and always in flux because it's a social contract. It's not. It's not a stable thing. The goods are the stable thing. And so, how can we? So, how can I? How can I look at at Casey and say it's absolutely fine that we don't remain friends after I leave? That's that's okay with me. It's not going to bother me. I'm sorry that I'm losing out on your ability to contact and make connections. Like that's what I'm bothered about losing. But I don't think you and I have a lot of a relationship left after this. Um, so, so th- that's that's where I need that's where I need to become better because I'm not very good at that. I'm I'm much better at being like no nah, everything's fine.
1: Yeah. Well, it. This is not necessarily what you said, but I'm kind of imagining like trying to still think in terms of putting like a personal hierarchy of values in place. Mm -hmm. Like, does that mean becoming better? Like in the, I I hate to appeal to Jocko Willink on this, but like all of what Jocko Willink does is talk about getting better, like faster, stronger, smarter, whatever, more healthy. Um, I parody that, but in some sense that is part of my hierarchy somewhere is personal development and improvement. And part of developing yourself is relationships, part of developing yourself is seeking truth, part of developing yourself is service, you know, being kind, like that sort of thing. There's like a myriad of that. I wonder if that's all the collective underneath this overarching value. But then again, um, and we've run into this in the, these nuanced conversations before about like at some point, personal development can become tyrannical and it can become yeah. like dismissive of what is it, which can be good enough most of the time.
0: I think that if I had to answer that, like if i improved those things, would I be becoming better? I think if I answered that, it would just, I wouldn't, I don't know, better, better, better. Whenever somebody says I'm becoming better, what I, I don't hear that the person has improved. The person has, is doing something different. And so they are now better. That's not what I hear. What I hear is like, I'm reaching a goal. Like they're, they're, I what I hear is like they are looking at something in the future for where they're going to get to like a spot a destination they're going to get to and to me that that makes that makes no sense it just doesn't make any sense I, I don't think like that it makes no sense that there's some place that you're going to get to and you're going to be perfect because that does, that has never existed in any human being i've ever met or heard about or read about or listened to and
1: those who become perfect in one domain or seldom perfect in multiple, you know, yeah. like, I don't know if you've ever seen parks and recreation. Um, it's a comedy TV show. Yeah, yeah, and I've there's, definitely seen it. There's this guy, uh, I think his name's Chris in the show. He's like a boss, but he's like super healthy, yes. like unreasonably healthy to the point of him being almost like a sociopath about it. Like there's other parts of his personality that get sacrificed because he's so in line with this one aspect, this one dimension of his personality. And you could say that about a lot of different kinds of people, but that's like a comedic example that comes to mind where things have to be like, like that character, if his health is ever like one or two points off in any direction, whether it's his heart rate or his his weight or his cholesterol or whatever, it's this horrible thing. The world is now imploding because perfection is now distant or more distant than it was. And that's hard to dismiss as a, as a person who's like has a finite existence because You want to have the best possible life you can. And so perfection is a way of like putting to bed that feeling of finitude where you can just like it's almost like a death anxiety. And it probably is some kind of subconscious version of that. But like if I just get to this next dollar threshold as like with my personal income, then my life will be okay. There's always this idea of once I get there, Mm -hmm. um, everything improves.
0: But like the, the whole the whole. What bothers me about that getting there is that when you get there and you start turning around realizing you've made it you still have more to go like any type of hike you take you get to your destination and you still have a journey to get back to where you wanted to be in the first place and so go ahead and get better but you got you have more better to get going you you have more better to do now is that
1: the myth of Sisyphus? You know, pushing yeah. the rock back yes. up the hill and then I mean, over and over and over and over. Yeah, like, this,
0: this this better is like this whole this whole better yourself movement feels like a Sisyphian metaphor for life. Like we're we're currently in this be better.
1: But isn't there something clear in terms? Like it's a lot easier to say this is worse than it is to say this is better. Like it you if you see your friend like start to. Do hard drugs all the time and like cut off their relationships and you see their health decline and all that you can be like that's worse rather than like if they're trying to get off of those drugs and be like yes that's better perfection is never even implied in either of those two discussions like it's not this unattainable thing but there is definitely a gradation of black versus white there
0: okay then what are we saying when we're saying worse or better we're saying we're so when we're talking about getting on drugs we're saying that's not effective for life You're not going to be able to life.
1: Yeah, so like, what's good for life then, I guess, is maybe the underlying question. And, I mean, to avoid suffering is one way of saying it, which is easier than saying to thrive, because what constitutes thriving?
0: Okay, so I think there are... So, if you have my... Let's take my personality, and let's take my personality that can be accommodating. So, as I go through life... I'm accommodating people. Look at me accommodating. I'm passing out accommodation. Now, is that good all the time? Absolutely not. Is it good some of the time? Yeah, yeah. it, it can be. It's not me being accommodating, because I'm not uber super absolutely entirely accommodating about everything and I just give everything of mine away. I am, I am collaborative in some sense. I am a small amount of competitive in some sense there are thi- there are things that i that i there are different attributes of my personality that i can use but my mainstay is accommodating hmm. and so i am still getting in i'm getting some place in life so if i become better sure i have now increased the i've now increased the statistics for collaboration more than accommodating but maybe the situation that I'm in at that moment, or the ten next situations, won't allow for collaboration or de- demand competitiveness. So should I should I go that way instead? Like this becomes like a gray goo. I feel like I feel like it becomes a gray goo situation. Where how do you? What do you use? What's best? Well, how do you determine what's best? I can determine the extremes are probably worse because. Those are, those don't life well. They're not effective. But if you're somewhere in the middle, it's probably not ineffective. Well, this, when I drugs, I'm re- though, are in like, they're wholly ineffective. They're yeah, extreme.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And it, that was an extreme case. But to the more general point that I think you and I are kind of going ba- back and forth around, which is, I think it's two more of Peterson's rules that kind of intersect, which is treat yourself like you're responsible or someone you're responsible for helping and then compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who others are today. Um, Both of which have been harder to learn for me, but definitely more important. And they appeared as more of a realization than some of the other rules. And I think... like. If, if we start talking about perspec- or perfection from like an external or a social point of view where we have multiple actors looking at a certain person's life and including that person and us trying to negotiate where they are on the spectrum, we're going to have wild disagreement all day long. The, I, maybe the best we can do is to look at ourselves and, and say, okay, that thing I did yesterday, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it made me feel bad. So I'm going to not do that today and see w- what that does for me and vice versa. Like... Um, you know, I see Preston doing this really cool behavior right now. He's like trying this new thing out in his life. Maybe my life would be improved if I followed that path too. Um, see what it does for me and, and so on. So I don't know if that pushes anything in any direction. I mean,
0: it, for me, it goes back to living life is, is a highly personal thing. Like what work, what's working for you? what's what's going to work best for you in x situation what's going to work best for you in z si- in z situation mm-hmm. it's always it's changing if i go to a party i wouldn't be there because i'm a quiet human being who doesn't enjoy parties mm-hmm. but if i have to go i know that i'm going to have to do some talking yeah so i need to change my outlook on it i mean that's again We're back to the gray goo thing.